Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 27. He that diligently seeketh good procureth favour. He that diligently seeketh good procureth favour. Why are we here on this earth? What should be the focus of our existence? It is to seek good and to do good. But the definition of good is defined by God, not by society or mainstream opinion. God alone is good. We should seek to do good because we seek God's favour. There's nothing wrong in seeking God's favour. We do not seek it in the sense of any meritorious reward. For we only receive God's blessings through his grace. But we seek God's favour in the sense of a son pleasing his father. In the sense of our delighting to do our heavenly father's will. If a man does not desire to be obedient to God at all times, he cannot be a true Christian, born again of God's Spirit. There is also the danger of the believer tapering off and becoming lukewarm and losing his first love and therefore ceasing to diligently seek good. So the question is not what have we been doing over many years in the past. The question is, are we serving Christ and pleasing him today? Colossians 3 verse 23, Paul exhorts us. Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. So let us note there that the believer's entrance into heaven is described as a reward. Even though we cannot merit salvation, God will nevertheless reward our faithfulness and our doing good. We are going to be judged according to our every act and word and thought of obedience or disobedience. We should not think that because we're Christians we're exempted from judgment. 
We're exempted from condemnation, but not from judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Wherefore we labour, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So, we are going to be judged according to what we do. We're going to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ according to what we do tomorrow. Now, the Christian is ambitious to be like Christ in all obedience. Whether he will be present with Christ in a very short while, because of his age or because of perhaps murderous persecution, or whether the Christian still has years of enduring service ahead. The true believer strives to be pleasing to his Lord. So that the Lord will say to him one day, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. A man's works of obedience prove what he really is. Whether he is truly born again or just has a profession of faith. The works are the key. Now, man is not good by nature nor is he in any way good apart from God. He can only begin to do good as God's grace works upon his heart, drawing him to that good. Now, it is true, of course, that non-believers, non-Christians are capable of doing some good works. Even though they are fallen creatures with no regenerating grace within them. But they are capable of doing some good things by God's gift of common grace, which He bestows on all men. So even the non believer who at times does good, and of course that good doesn't compensate for all the bad he does, all the wickedness he does. But even when the unbeliever at times does some good things, it is by God's grace, even though he does not recognise that grace. All are made in God's image. All have a God-given conscience. The law of God is written upon the non-believer's heart, what we are taught in Scripture. even though that non-believer tends to devote himself to suppressing the knowledge of God which he has been given. Now, with the Christian, 
he has God's law rewritten upon his heart in a far more vivid way. And this is done at the new birth. And so the believer in Christ has a burning desire to please God by his obedience. He will seek to do good in God's sight at all times. He will apply, apply the word of God to every area of life. There's no departments of life where you don't apply the word of God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we at this moment procuring God's favour by our manner of life? We are not just thinking of the ultimate favour of God, which on the day of judgment, by grace alone, will be ours, the eternal favour of God. But we are also considering God's favour upon the faithful believer right now. Holiness and the favour of God will have positive consequences for the Christian in this life. The Christian, for example, will not be subject to the punitive strokes of God's justice in this life to which the non-believer is exposed. And the second half of this verse 27 refers to punitive strokes of justice upon those who ignore God. But he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. So he will reap the consequences in this life, as well as on the great last day. John Wesley once wrote this, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. That is the spirit of this text here. He that diligently seeketh good procureth favour. Doing the good which is perfect obedience to God's law must be pursued with single-minded diligence. It must be the focus of every single day which we live. To pursue obedience is the only way to enjoy God's favour. And there is a sense in which Bible-believing Christians can put so much emphasis upon God's grace, which is a very good emphasis, that we neglect the need for obedience. Obedience. 
Proverbs 12, verse 2. The next chapter here. A good man obtaineth favour of the Lord, but a man of devices, wicked devices, will he condemn. There is nothing more important than being in the perfect centre of God's will. All lives, both those of believers and non-believers, are lived out under the Lord's all-seeing eye. Now, unbelief itself is appalling sin and wickedness. It's not neutral not to believe in the one true Trinitarian God is an ongoing act of wickedness. The non-Christian should be ashamed of not believing in his maker and his redeemer. All non-believers are already in a state of condemnation. That's their condition. Right now, condemned. And that's why in our evangelism, we've got to be very careful. We don't, we don't go out and say, Jesus loves you, because that gives the wrong impression. It tells them that they're not condemned. They're not in a state of condemnation. What we have to say is, look, you are in a state of condemnation and the Lord Jesus Christ is reaching out to you with his mercy. But right now, unless you come to him, you are condemned. And the unbeliever's ongoing sin and rebellion through life is just constantly building up the wrath of God against him. So, returning to the second half of our text here, verse 27. But he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. Sin is a fool's game. One commentator writes this, the mischief the sinner does to himself is greater than that intended against his neighbour. The mischief the sinner does to himself is greater than that intended against his neighbour. Men harm themselves when they defy the laws of God. And their consciences become less sensitive with each and every sin. Their hearts become more hardened. They are storing up God's wrath. Paul actually uses that phrase in the epistle to the Romans. They are storing up God's wrath and they are storing up earthly troubles as well. In God's providence, sin always has ways of catching up with men. A dramatic example of this principle is the malicious design of the Persian first minister Haman against the Jew Mordecai, of which we read in the book of Esther. 
Haman, out of malice, planned to have Mordecai executed, even preparing the gallows to do this in the grounds of his own house. In God's providence, however, at the very same time, a sleepless king began reading one night the official state records of his government. Well, I suppose that's something to do if you cannot get to sleep. That's the king was reading through the state records. He happened to find out something he did not know. He found out that this man, Mordecai, who was about to be executed, had in fact been a great blessing to him personally because he had uncovered an assassination plot against the king. So this man who was about to be executed had in fact saved the king's life. The king did not know that. And so the next morning he resolved to make sure that Mordecai was not executed. And indeed, he rewarded him, elevated him. And he found out about Haman's evil plot to take Mordecai's life. We read in Esther 7 and verse 9, Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang Haman thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had procured for Mordecai. Haman's malice was turned upon his own head. This is what our text is saying, verse 27. He that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. Let us think similarly of King Saul, who maliciously plotted against the life of David. But it was Saul who fell upon his own sword in battle. We can consider the wickedness of the brothers of Joseph, selling their young brother into slavery and then lying to their father that he had been killed by a wild animal. However, their sin did catch up with them. They concealed it for many years, but it finally caught up with them in this life. One day they would have to go down to Egypt and they would have to beg to buy food from an Egyptian. And who was the Egyptian they had to beg from? It was, in fact, Joseph himself. 
who had become a naturalised Egyptian. Joseph had the power to refuse them. He had the power to condemn them as spies. They realised that their former wickedness was rebounding upon them. He that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. Genesis 42, verse 21. Then said the brothers one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us when they were being accused of being spies in Egypt, when they realised what trouble they were in, that is when the conviction of that sin many years previously came upon them. And so sin rebounds on men even in this life in ways which men never imagine it could do. Solomon goes on in verse 28 here. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall. Now, that's a simple statement. And perhaps as Christians, we can see it and say, yes, I agree with that. But actually, it's a very hard teaching to really take on board because human observation suggests the exact opposite surely the wealthy have extra security especially in times of crisis surely they have more resources on which to fall back. However, God's word says here that those who trust in their riches are not better off. We must believe what God says. We have already seen in this chapter 11 and verse 4, riches profit not in the day of wrath. If God comes in judgment against an individual or against a nation, his or its wealth will be of no avail. The man who trusts in his riches is by definition a non-believer. He is not putting his trust in God. And as well as riches, we can think here of anything which is a substitute for a trust in God. The unbeliever does not realise that he is exposed to God's providence, who can suddenly remove his wealth or his ability to enjoy his wealth. No wealthy man, for example, can secure through riches permanent good health. 
No wealthy man can secure through riches guaranteed happiness in personal relationships. And actually, if, if we look at wealthy people, they often frequently have broken personal relationships. Now, there is nothing wrong, of course, with being a, a careful steward of one's money, putting funds aside for rainy days, making sure one meets one's obligations. But this must always be done in the context of the awareness that God alone provides. No material wealth can ever remotely compare with the inestimable value of knowing God and of receiving his mercy and salvation. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall. Jeremiah 9 verse 23. Jeremiah 9 23. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. The man who throughout his life has ignored God and sought his security in earthly riches will inevitably fall. He will, of course, fall when he meets his maker on the great last day. However, some rich men may also be made to fall in this life. Because scripture clearly teaches that God can judge men whilst they are still living. We sometimes forget that. An uncontrolled love of money can make a man a slave to other harmful lusts and passions, hastening his downfall. The Apostle Paul speaks of uncertain riches because they are not as secure and lasting as people imagine. And God has ways of suddenly removing them. Our Lord himself referred to the deceitfulness of riches. They do not bring the happiness and security which people think that they will. Our Lord then gives us this warning. Some wealthy man, some wealthy men do manage to retain their riches throughout their lives. But if they have made the riches their trust and confidence, they will also have hardened themselves to spiritual reality and to God's work on their consciences. And so they are not to be envied. Remember what the Lord said about how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So 
We should actually have a special compassion for the rich because it's far harder for them to be saved. And this again is where communism falls down. It despises the rich and wants what they've got. That's not the Christian approach. Our Lord once had a conversation with a very rich man who was certainly being drawn to true faith in God. But his trust in his wealth was the major stumbling block to his conversion. It was the one thing he did not want to give up. Second half of verse 28. The righteous shall flourish as a branch. Now, the metaphor here is that of, on the one hand, a dried up leaf which withers, being compared to a strong, sturdy branch which will yield abundant buds and fruit. The rich man is like withered up leaves, whilst the obedient believer has the life of God within him and is the object of God's providential care. So, let us note here in verse 28 the blunt contrast between the rich man and the righteous man. So much does the love of money tend to sin. A righteous man with a clear conscience before God can face life's crises with far more strength than the rich man whose sins remain rampant and unforgiven. Psalm 1, verse 3. We are told of the righteous man that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. A man who conforms to God's laws will avoid all the pitfalls into which sin inevitably leads. In that sense, he will always prosper. Now, this does not mean that the obedient man will never know illness will never know personal difficulties. But even in the midst of those trials, the righteous man can prosper in that he is remaining in God's will and he is under God's special care regarding his earthly circumstances. In contrast to that, he that trusteth in his riches shall fall. Even in this life, God can find ways of removing the false confidence which a man has put upon his wealth. 
And in verse 29 we are told, He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind. We can think here of those who bring trouble upon their own family, their own tribe, and even their own nation. A man's sin frequently reverberates upon those around him. It's not just confined to the individual. Now, we might think, in respect of this verse 29, of the master of the house in biblical times who mistreated his servants, perhaps by not giving them sufficient provisions and rest. Let him not imagine that he will make himself any more prosperous by mistreating his servants. We can think of a family member whose conduct rebounds upon other family members. That person might be argumentative and selfish, not prepared to give way, not respectful to parents. Such a one will never be the gainer thereby. We can think of rulers and governments who legislate against God's laws and to act as if nations are not answerable to God. They trouble the house, which is the nation, and they bring down judgment upon the whole land. Let us consider the head of the house who wastes the family substance, perhaps, say, through his drinking habits, or who is not diligent in his work. Then there is also the man who simply sets a bad example to the household in all kinds of ways by his general wicked behaviour. The family members do not see holiness in his life. He does not teach them to fear God and keep his commandments. He gives them no moral direction. He excuses himself by saying that he wants them to make up their own minds. He does not protect them from the harmful influences of a God-rejecting world all around. Because he does not trust God. He is prepared at times for personal advantage to be dishonest. Well, such a man cannot bring blessing to his family. Even though he might obtain some temporary advantage by his scheming, he will bring no lasting blessing to his family. The high priest Eli is an example of one who brought much trouble upon his own house because he failed to discipline his sons. But he let them carry on in all kinds of immoral practices, even whilst performing their priestly 
duties. He did not discipline them. And so that sin reverberated upon Eli's house. Eli's descendant, Abiathar, was deposed from the priesthood and the privilege of being amongst the priestly descendants of Aaron was completely lost to Eli's family. We are told in the second half of verse 29 here, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. In God's providence, he who is foolish in the management of his household may well be reduced to the status of serving one who is far wiser than he. God has ways of bringing down the proud-hearted rebels against him, even in this life. Now, Joseph was wise of heart, yet his foolish older brothers, who once had power over him, eventually became his servants, as they were forced to bow down before him as the Prime Minister of Egypt. So these three verses, 27 to 29, are contrasting the believer's security on the one hand with the non-believer's insecurity. We have learnt that the Christian is one who all the time diligently seeks the favour of God and to do that which is good in God's sight. We see that the true believer constantly desires to be obedient. And as he is obedient, he procures God's favour. Even in this life, as well as on the great last day. Now, in contrast to that, the non-believer is constantly displeasing God. He is exposing himself to punitive strokes of justice. Not only on the day of judgment, but also in this life. For we are told here that he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. Verse 27. We have seen how the non-believer puts his trust in material things. For security. And leaves God out of the picture. But sin, unbelief and money and all other forms of human ingenuity can give no real security at all. We live in a society 
which is putting all its trust in science to solve all the problems. But it is ignoring God. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall. The one who trusts in the material things of this world shall fall. The fall may well be in this life. God has ways of removing the rich man's wealth or his ability to enjoy it. A man's sin reverberates negatively upon those around him, especially upon his family, we are told here. God has ways of making fools become servants to the wise of heart. And so everyone who is defying God should realise that God can suddenly turn around their circumstances and situation, even in this life, in providential judgments. So really, the non-believer, the man who rejects God, should be trembling because he has no real security and he is exposed at any moment to the judgment of God, even a judgment in time. And so, we, out of love, warn the non-believer. Numbers 32, verse 23. Numbers 32, verse 23. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. And so, here in these three verses is a warning to all those who ignore God that they have no security whatsoever. That they can be brought down by the judgment of God at any moment. This applies to individuals, it applies to families, it applies to nations. For real security, the only place to be is at the very centre of God's will. This is where the righteous flourish. The only place of true security is for a man to diligently obey God with all of his heart, every moment of the day. Amen.